Today on Security Science, we discuss epidemiology for cybersecurity. Thanks for listening to the second episode in our Risk Measured series, where we discuss all the nitty-gritty, nuanced, and highly technical concepts for measuring risk as it pertains to technology. Today's topic should prove particularly interesting given the current world events, epidemiology, and how it relates to cybersecurity. Joining me today is everyone's favorite data scientist and soon-to-be cold-brewed coffee provider, Michael Reutemann. How's it going, Michael? Pretty good. These keep sounding like just ads for my coffee company. Well, it's you're always doing something new each time, so I kind of got to plug it, right? I got to I got to stop doing stuff, otherwise this is just going to be a coffee spiel. Do you want to be sponsored by Coffee Company? I, I that's what I've been quietly angling towards over time. Right. Let's talk about it offline. <laughs> uh, we also have a special guest joining us today. He's an expert in complex systems and network science, covering a vast range of topics, including infectious diseases forecasting and predictive modeling, disease genomics and transnomics, or transcriptonomics, outbreak surveillance, and decision-making under uncertainty. It's my pleasure to welcome Assistant Professor of the Network Science Institute at Northeastern University, Samuel Scarpino. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. And I, I know you get a lot of questions around COVID. We will try to not ask you about COVID on this podcast. I can't promise anything, but that's the goal from my side. Well, I thought I was here because of some issues I've been having with my browser. Is that not what this is for? Oh, Michael does the IT help desk after the podcast recording session. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> that's your payment for being on this podcast. It's Absolutely. IT help desk. So I'm going to start off the podcast like we do pretty often with some of these complex topics with a probably completely out of whack definition of what is epidemiology. So according to CDC, epidemiology is the study, scientific, systematic, and data-driven of the distribution, frequency, and or pattern and determinants, so the causes and risk factors of health-related states and events, not just diseases in specific populations. Sam, what does that actually mean? Well, what epidemiology actually means and I think this is actually part of the reason that we're having a conversation today has grown and changed quite a bit over, over the last 10 years. So the definition that you read, you know, if I, when I translate that in my, in my head, it's leveraging data and statistics to understand uh, why some populations have a certain disease and others don't, why the prevalence of a certain disease is higher in some places than others, uh, why a disease is reemerging or, or, or persisting. And then that word cause is really important because we want to try to understand what's causing those differences so that we can suggest public health interventions. Interesting. So essentially trying to find patterns and complex interdependencies within specific groups. Yes, although the only thing that I would add to that is that we ideally want those patterns to get as close to causality as possible uh, so that we can have targeted effective interventions that will improve the public's health. And this is where we're getting into security already. So you said one thing in Sam's intro, which stuck with me, which is decisions under uncertainty and diseases across populations. Both of those sound an awful lot like security practice. So if you just replace disease with vulnerability or insecurity, why do some organizations or some verticals behave differently security wise? And how can we measure and design interventions across those populations? Um, we're pretty good at security at taking a particular vulnerability or a particular event 
and deciding what to do about it from a technical perspective. We're not so good at zooming out and looking at the statistical causes of it or even the statistical correlations of it across populations. That's why we wanted to have Sam on the podcast too. Is security or insecurity anything like a disease or am I just seeing parallels where they don't exist? No, I think that there are a lot of similarities and that's actually one of the things that I'm, I'm really excited to talk about today is whether those similarities are superficial and I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, but whether they're superficial or whether they're actually uh, foundational in the sense that some of the same kinds of things that might make a particular population of individuals or a particular office building, for example, more vulnerable to a COVID-19 outbreak, whether some of those same kinds of patterns uh, would apply to the way in which uh, the technology infrastructure for a particular organization may be, or the technology practices or policies maybe could make an organization more vulnerable to uh, to particular kinds of, of security issues. So an example of a complex system would be uh, a human society where you have individuals who are going about their daily lives. They're going to the grocery store, they're going to the park, they're going to work. But the way in which a disease is going to move through those populations might be very difficult to predict just based on having some understanding about uh, the way individuals decide to go to the grocery store, or the way individuals decide uh, to go to a particular office building or take a particular route to work. And so this idea of even if you understand a lot about the component parts, the resulting behavior of the aggregate system is, is often very difficult to, to predict. Could you give us a good example of like a model or how you would model a complex system like that? I, I know you, um, we were talking earlier and you use the example of power grids and how they're, uh, you know, a lot of people like to systems analysts, things like that, like to uh, analyze how power grids and power failures uh, can materialize through systems because they're not as easy to predict as you would think from the outside. Right. So, and actually for power grids in some ways are, are easier to predict than other things that we might think about for complex systems. And so the reason the power grids are a really uh, kind of classic example is that you have this physical network structure that describes the connectivity between, you know, substations and transformers and telephone poles and all the wires that are, that are connecting our houses uh, to each other. And, you know, back to the, back to the power generating sources and, if there's a blackout and you want to predict where the next blackout is going to occur in the power grid, it's often very difficult or impossible to do that just based on the understanding the physical connections between the different substations, between the different telephone poles. You actually have to layer on top of that a physics model of the way electricity works uh, and how electricity is going to flow through a network after there's been a perturbation. And so one of, and th this is very common across lots of different uh, models of complex systems where we need to understand something about how things are connected to each other, how human social networks are formed, how the connection between different uh, Internet of Things devices uh, arises, but then also how the dynamics of anything that we're interested in is going to flow across those networks. And so whether that's a hashtag trending on Twitter or whether that's a virus, we need to understand both the connections and how things move over those connections. 
in order to start to make reasonable predictions about what's going to happen. Interesting. So that's a lot of data sources. Yeah. Are there situations where just having one or the other yields something fruitful or do you usually need both? I would say that that's often a research question that people are very interested in and is quite often an active area of debate amongst scientists and practitioners. So I might tell you the reason I can't predict the next location of a blackout is because we have to have both the physical structure of the connections between the power uh, sources and also a good physics model of the way electricity works. Well, we understand quite a bit about the physics of electricity, so we know that's the right answer. Set no, I'm putting scare quotes, you can't see them, uh, but I'm putting scare quotes around no. But if we didn't understand as much about electricity, maybe you would come back and say, well, if you just had information on all of these new solar panels that we put up that maybe aren't in your data set, maybe then your prediction would be good. And so not only is there a lot of debate kind of from a theory of knowledge perspective or a philosophical perspective or a complex systems perspective about whether you could predict with only the physical connections and or only the the dynamics, it often then becomes an argument about, well, how do we really convincingly say it's a bad prediction without both of them as opposed to just a missing data problem? Okay. Okay. So tracking and trying to create an analog to security and cheating a little because I've read some of your work, are there systems for which we can't issue predictions? Well, first, I would say it depends quite a bit on what we mean by a prediction, right? So I can certainly make a prediction, especially if you're not going to evaluate it, right? So like if, if there's nothing on the line, I can make all the predictions that I want. And then even if I was going to make a prediction, right? Like let's say I'm going to, I'm going to make a prediction about whether the next coin flip that Michael does is heads or tails. Uh, and so, and so is Dan and, you know, but Dan's going to lose 50 bucks if he's wrong and I'm going to lose 10 cents if I'm wrong. We may have very different thresholds for error in our predictions under those different settings. Right. And so one of the things that we try to formalize is how we actually make those decisions given that, um, the accuracy of the prediction or the necessary accuracy of the prediction is typically dependent upon um, what decision you're trying to make in your own risk tolerance. Okay. I think a lot of security practitioners probably laughed at no cost to a bad prediction. I know Dan and I both did. <laughs> yeah. um, that's because in security, every decision or action you take either has a cost or some huge cost if you made the wrong one. So I'm thinking about making predictions on the defender side, getting really tactical here. This is what we do in security. When we try to breach ML, we try to predict a type of malware. Maybe it's polymorphic and it's changing and a new strand will come out, a new exploit will come out for a vulnerability. But what we're really doing there is we're predicting attacker behavior. There's huge payoff functions to that, right? If you're really good at it, you can save an organization billions of dollars. If you're bad at it, you might waste resources by having somebody remediate tons of vulnerabilities that don't end up mattering at all. Um, but security is actually a game between an attacker and a defender. And in our case, unlike the CDC definition of epidemiology, our, uh, our disease vector is actually a sentient opponent. It's a, somebody who's thinking and making predictions on their own. Uh, to them, there isn't any cost to a bad prediction because they rarely, if ever, get caught 
And when we're talking about something like writing an exploit, you never get caught, right? You can spray and pray across the internet all day and fire off an exploit against every box connected to the internet. And you might make some money that way. There's no cost to being wrong in that scenario. So I'm wondering if that's a pretty unique system or if that's something that we've thought about before where you've got two folks who are building models of the opponent and one has a really high cost and one has a really low cost. Attacker asymmetry would be the SEO search term we want Google to mention when transcribing this podcast. Well, there's certainly an analogy in on the infectious disease side, right? And so you think about COVID-19 and it, it's a little bit challenging, I think, to get the the terminology right. And so I'm, I'm just going to kind of, I'll be a little bit loose with apologies to any evolutionary biologists that are listening, but um, there's relatively little to no cost to COVID for an individual virus dying. And let's just set aside the fact that I'm saying a virus is dying and not talk about whether they were alive in the first place, but there's basically no cost to an individual virus dying. There, to the human population, we'll just stay at the population level, to the human population, uh, there, there is a cost, often a very high cost, uh, certainly an emotional and societal cost to an individual dying. Um, and then once we start getting into much higher numbers, there's still probably lo- little cost if a million viruses die and there would be a massive cost. Uh, and there has been, you know, when when you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals dying uh, from from a disease. And so I do think that you often find these kinds of asymmetries and, and those are really uh, active and interesting areas of research in evolutionary biology and complex systems, which is like what kinds of, of evolutionary mechanisms do we see arising in human defenses against viral pathogens where the asymmetry between the cost of an individual losing is, is vast. And I think also to your question around modeling complex systems, those are one of the, those are one of the areas where we look for simplifications, right? So, and and I I would assume that there's probably a, a similar analogy in, in the security space is that you, you know, you want to have a model that's as complex as necessary, but no more, right? Like I'm paraphrasing a, a famous quote because we want to try to, and this is going back to the epi side, we want to try to understand what's going on, what's causal so that we can actually I- intervene. And, and again, you know, we could probably have a different conversation around whether you need to actually understand causality to make good predictions or not. Maybe you don't, but I think certainly if you understood the causality, you would at least know whether you could in principle make good good predictions. And so I think that that's, that's something that is, uh, that is very similar. Okay. Let's talk about operationalizing predictions. You're right. In security, we try to make models as simple as they can be so that we can hand off a prediction to somebody and they'll do something about it. And this might get into some tricky territory, but let's say I had a perfectly predictive model of vulnerability exploitation and I could demonstrate that. And I published that research paper and I had a product that did that. And then the security team was sending tons of tickets for somebody to go update a system or to switch out a box. Um, but the underlying reason for that prediction, it would be very difficult to recover. Let's say it included 400 different variables, 300 of them coming from closed source sources that I'm purchasing somewhere or scanning the dark web for. If you couldn't explain why they're doing that action, you would have a much smaller probability of the IT operations team actually executing your recommendations that you're really good models predicting. On the flip side, if you had a model that was 95% precise, but only included 10 variables, 
maybe they would look at those and say, oh, I intuitively understand the causality here. I understand why this prediction or recommendation is being made. I'll act on it. So the question of will this get operationalized? Is this helpful to the person actually acting on it? Because this, this is also something that I see as an analog. The epidemiologists are not the doctors treating patients. They're not even the patients themselves. They're making statements about the population as a whole. And then hoping that those recommendations and policies and interventions get undertaken. I think security works the same way. We just don't think of it that way. We're making recommendations to a gigantic IT organization and then hoping that those take hold. Um, I'm wondering if you found in epidemiology methods, practices, modeling techniques that make recommendations more likely to actually get taken or followed. That is certainly one of the biggest challenges in the public health space is translating what we learn from the data into uh, actionable policies that will be implemented and followed. Um, we've seen this with COVID-19, right? That it's been, it was initially a scientific challenge to understand the benefits of mask wearing. And then after we understood the benefits of mask wearing, it became a very complex policy problem uh, to try and, and convince individuals uh, to wear masks. And part of the reason why, right, is it it's not very much fun to wear a mask. And so one of the things that we saw right from the beginning was that we were using the same kinds of mechanisms to try to get people to wear masks that we know don't work for analogous efforts like uh, we've seen with, with safe sex, right? So it's well known that you can't shame people uh, into wearing condoms more often. And for masks, we saw the same kinds of things, right? And so there are lessons that we can learn, but oftentimes it's been done through sort of a trial and error process. And then now where we take something that we know in sort of a, a quasi uh, Bayesian way, we take something that we know works for uh, something that is a little bit like mask wearing. And then we, we try those same policies out, uh, you know, on the mask wearing side of things. That makes sense. That reminds me of a trade-off in security between security, functionality, and usability. That triangle is kind of canon in security. Um, a mask seems to fit really well into that. But any security policy isn't really something people want to be doing. It trades off with either functionality. How sweet would it be if you never had to log into anything? You just show up to the site and can use all the functionality there. Or it trades off with some of the functionality. Let's say you blacklist a bunch of websites so you can't access those and you, you can't use your browser to go to the dark web. Um, but we know that those trade-offs are worth it because essentially for every intervention, we're conducting ROI experiments on them. And that's where I think epidemiology is super useful in security. If we have large enough data sets of populations, which surprisingly mass scanning of the internet is a pretty recent thing, maybe past five, six years is when folks have started doing it. Um, or mass scanning of organizations is also a pretty recent thing, maybe past 10 years. We now have these large data sets of organizations as a population, you know, the finance industry as a population, or the entire internet that's publicly accessible as a population. We can start to test whether certain security protocols or recommendations actually are worth the ROI. Well, and that's a really interesting observation and is, I think, perhaps a difference between epidemiology and public health security and then you know, the analogy back to the virus trying to, you know, replicate and spread through the population 
or or maybe even to high frequency trading where it's it's perhaps less important that the causality be understood just that it's working right so the entire process kind of runs based on an objective function as long as things are going up you continue to do them and if they start going down uh then maybe things change very very quickly and it is less important that you understand the causality and it is interesting to think about whether whether causality is important because we need accurate predictions or whether causality is important because we need to understand how to get buy-in to implement policies so that we actually affect the change that that we care about i'm trying to think about that objective function changing uh, the best example we have in security is probably the emergence of ransomware, where the payoff to attackers changed once that started becoming common practice. And they could all of a sudden you know, get a ransom from somebody instead of waiting to sell off an account or sell off documents that they got by getting into a system. So the types of vulnerabilities that were written changed. Um, that seems similar to how a virus behaves. There's a very simple payoff function there, and it changed so that the underlying mechanism or the underlying way that folks exploit vulnerabilities also started to change or started getting used in different ways. Yeah, I guess I would be interested in, in which side of, of the equation the host or the parasite or the attacker or the defender actually changed, right? So you could, you could imagine, and this is probably true to a certain extent that, and we, we actually know this is true, that the coronavirus that's here today has been around in a very similar form for, for at least, you know, part of a year and probably in a, in a fairly similar form for quite some time, there are pretty constant exposure of coronaviruses, novel coronaviruses um, all, all over parts of the world uh, that are happening regularly. We know, for example, with, with HIV that there were probably, you know, regular exposures uh, going back decades and decades before it took hold. Uh, you know, in the U.S. with with the coronavirus, we see that the the strain that's here now probably showed up in February was not the one that that originally came. It's the same strain. It's not the same introduction as back in January. And the question really is whether there's something about the way that the hosts are behaving that changed, or whether there's something about the virus. Or, and I've used three different examples that illustrate all three of these: the host, the virus, or just bad luck, right? And sometimes that's the really hard part for all of us is is our brains are wired to see patterns, even if they're not there, is also convincing yourself that the reason that we're, we're seeing coronavirus now isn't just because of it's been a waiting game for 10 years and, you know, it finally came up tails. Right. Low probability event actually occurring, causing the, the big security breach, even though you had a really good security policy and we're fixing all the high probability vulnerabilities. Happens all the time. Too. That's right. That's right. And then you, you end up switching your entire security policy because you got unlucky once. Right. And, uh, I'm, but I guess I was thinking on the ransomware side is I, you know, I'm, I don't know how effective that would have been even five years ago, but now I, we are certainly in a situation where people have vast troves of highly valuable, sensitive documents that exist exclusively in digital form. Uh, and that by taking over those systems, you could extract a very high price, and often have people not want to admit that it happened. Um, and, and I don't know if that's, if that's scenario is as likely to be true across nearly every organization 10 years ago as it is today. 
Well, and there's some unintentional uh, technologies that related to that proliferation as well, right? Like, would this be possible without the emergence of cryptocurrency, for example, right? A way to wash and transfer this kind of this kind of digital funds that may not have existed before, you know, roughly eight nine years ago, right? So, how do you control for or and or identify some of these like unintended consequences that um, you know really do change the dynamic of some of these models? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm thinking back in high school, we used to play a game called uh, sort of Tall Tales, which is like everybody was almost everybody was going to say something that wasn't true. And you kind of had to guess who was telling the truth. And so I'm going to do that right now. And <laughs> what, what I'll say is that there are many other things that have changed. And one of them is related to Michael's earlier point about, you know, sort of ease of ease of use and installation versus versus security. Right. So like I started using Zoom because nobody had to install anything. You just click on something and it works for everybody instead of no one being able to sign into whatever video conferencing platform we were using uh, back then. And we know that that introduced so many security vulnerabilities. And I think probably even those of us like me who don't really even have an armchair understanding of security realize that this thing probably wasn't a safe way to be doing business, but it made our lives easier. And we've got this fierce competition over video conferencing. And one way to win is to make things super easy and frictionless even if you lose on the security side for a little bit before before the Michael Reitmans of the world catch up to you. And so that we have had that push, right? And so maybe there are just such a, a large diversity of ways in which an attacker could gain entry to one of these companies and take over a computer uh, that didn't exist before. And so maybe where you could have, you know, uh, a, an IBM patching your whole system fairly successfully 10 years ago, that's just never gonna happen in most organizations now. And so not only do you have mechanisms like cryptocurrency, but you also have, uh, you, know, you know, the proliferation of, of security vulnerabilities through all of these apps and everything that we have installed on all of our different devices. And that's the complex systems piece there, right? Is like, how do we understand the way all of these different pieces are sliding together to generate the, the massive growth in ransomware? And then if we actually care about intervening, how do we figure out which one of these things or which combination of these things is actually the cause and so we don't shut down the Zooms because really the issue is the cryptocurrency. In fact, it's all of the above. And so you've got to target everything or you're never going to make progress. I mean, one way that this is all coming together, too, is that COVID-19 is changing the way people work, too. Work from home being proliferated to organizations that might not be used to it is introducing an entirely new attack surface and an attack vector. And that's changing the system, too. So to bring it all together, maybe more semantically than we like. Uh, you know, the epidemiology is also affecting the security of certain systems and certain vulnerabilities. I want to take a second and move back up the chain uh, to something I think about very often, which is day zero. Uh, day zero for vulnerabilities is when we first find out that they exist. And at that time, usually all we've got is a description, a document that somebody wrote up saying, hey, there's a vulnerability here. I've given it an identifier. This is some of the mechanism. This is some of the software it affects. Good luck. Of course, over time, we build detection signatures. We build protocols around them. Scanners will find them in systems when you run a scanner. IDS signatures will detect if somebody's attacking it. People will write exploits. There's a whole life cycle that happens. But I really care about day zero because if I could, at that moment, tell you this one's going to be an important one, go remediate it, I am now using epidemiology really, but I'm using security analytics to be steps ahead of the attacker instead of just responding to them. 
I mean, why do you think the whole rest of the world for the most part is doing better at COVID than we are, right? So like the genome of the virus was published by the Chinese uh, just, you know, moments from, from all practical purposes after we discovered these unidentified uh, pneumonia cases in the seafood market and immediately uh, governments, NGOs, businesses around the world started building molecular diagnostic tests to screen for COVID-19. And in the United States, our strategy was, well, if we don't test, then it won't be here. Right. And <laughs> I'm certainly I'm sure there's there are companies that have that security policy. Right. That like if we don't if we don't ask Michael, nothing bad will happen. But like we know that that doesn't work. Right. And so I think the analogy there is is real. What's interesting about that analogy is you might have the best analytics practice in the world, but if you're assessing every vulnerability once the data is already available about it, if you're not doing anything predictive, if you're not actually using some of the more sophisticated analytic techniques that have been developed over the past 20, 30 years, then even still, you might be fighting an exponential battle and way too far behind when you're reacting to vulnerabilities instead of proactively getting them out of your system when you know very little about them. Absolutely. You know, people are going to be arguing for decades about when exactly we knew with pretty high certainty that, that COVID was likely to go pandemic. But it, it certainly, we will decide that that was sometime by early February. And that's not when the United States started its COVID response. You know, you would argue that we missed the early cases on the East Coast. And so the East Coast hit the panic button after it was almost too late. But then really the United States didn't start doing much until uh, it slammed into Florida, Texas, Arizona. And then really even still, we haven't done very much, but we are very much in a situation where we just continue to react. And I, I would imagine the same is true on the security side, which is had we put in a little bit more investment back in March and April, we would be looking much more like uh, Australia than um, than the United States. And that's better for the economy. It's better for our societies. The kids would be able to go back to school in person. And so it, but it's hard. It's really hard. Even when you don't have the political landscape that we do in the United States, it's really hard to convince people to invest in preparation and proactive measures, even though they're orders and orders of magnitude less expensive um, than, than a reactive measure. Okay. So here comes the most interesting part of this whole podcast to me and why I wanted to talk to Sam about this. You're right. It's very hard to convince people to invest in prophylactic care or preventative care. It has been in security for 30 years, very difficult to get people to invest in security. There have been times when Fortune 1000 organizations, you know, in the early 2000s had one security person on staff, if that. But now, because of a lot of wide-scale breaches, most security organizations, most IT organizations have security departments, are investing in it. You know, CISOs are joining the boards now. And that's largely because of these singularity events that have occurred that have caused dramatic shifts in the way that boards view security policy. One could argue we've had many diseases in the past, but this pandemic is also an example of that in the public health sphere. I want to ask you about early warning systems and how we can design them in ways that look ahead. So let's say now security has had these events. Public health has always had these events, but one's top of mind. We know that we need to invest. We know that we need to convince people to invest more. What kinds of systems should we be building? What kind of data should we be getting to 
facilitate those systems? And how do we get stakeholders to engage? Not just now, but throughout time, even when there isn't a pandemic that's top of mind. Well, certainly the answer to that question is something that many of us are working on actively now and, and have been working on for years and years. And, and hopefully you're right that there will be more collective understanding around the importance of surveillance, of, of early warning systems, of effective interventions. I do think that a big part of the issue on the pandemic side is that a lot of our collective wisdom is around influenza, where we sort of expect that we would be able to have a vaccine within six months. And we know for influenza that because of the way it spreads through the population, it's very hard to stop flu until there's a vaccine. It just marches along too regularly. Whereas for a disease like COVID, you know, I think that we've certainly heard it described as kind of the Goldilocks virus, where it's like this, in the sweet spot of all these different um, kind of epidemiological parameters. And one of them is that it's just deterministic, just regular enough that it can cause these big outbreaks, but it's still pretty reliant on chance events, on these super spreading events that we can tamp it down with non-pharmaceutical interventions that can actually be implemented, like mask wearing at 80%, like, you know, limiting gathering sizes to, you know, 15, 20 uh, individuals. So I think what it's going to take to convince individuals is first convincing individuals that there's something we can actually do if we're right about the early warning. And obviously on this, not maybe not obviously, I'm saying obviously because I don't understand security as well as I understand epidemiology. Maybe anytime you hear me say obviously, that just means that I don't understand whatever I'm getting ready to say as well as something else. Obviously, on the security side, there's a lot more you could do with an early warning system, or at least that would be the conventional wisdom. But I think now we understand on the infectious disease side that there is a lot more that we can do if what we want to have happen is to prevent a whole scale lockdown like we've experienced globally. Right. We can have really effective, low cost, uh, high throughput screening uh, that can you know, lead to case isolation. We can have mask wearing. Uh, we can have all kinds of different targeted interventions that are going to allow us to minimize the costs of, of, of an intervention. However, I do think the other piece is actually figuring out how to generate those warnings. And that's something that we've struggled with for a long time. So you can find papers back to the 1980s showing that individuals in West Africa have antibodies to Ebola. And that doesn't mean Ebola was spreading in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia prior to the, the outbreak in, you know, in the 2014-15 period, but it means that there was risk there. Either individuals are going to areas with Ebola and coming back, or there had been introductions, but the risk isn't zero. You think to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, we are laser focused on wild bird flus because those are highly pathogenic. It's your H5N1s, your H7N9s that we hear about. But that's not where flu jumped from. Flu jumped from pigs in Mexico, and Mexico wasn't even really on the surveillance map for influenza. But we've known for decades that pigs are an important evolutionary intermediary for, for flu. So part of it is actually building those warning systems that generate enough true positives without generating too many false positives uh, so that we're not in the Homer Simpson everything all right. And people are listening coupling those with interventions that people will actually get behind that, that we can do something about. And hopefully we're going to coalesce around that. So what's the best bang for our buck? Well, I think two things. One of the things that 
I met Michael's probably understood about me because we've known each other for, for a few years now. And, and I think people find out pretty quickly is that I, I get like super obsessed about something. And the thing that I'm super obsessed about right now is, is wastewater surveillance. And that's because even if you can't transmit COVID from feces, you're still shedding evidence of your COVID infection in your feces in your urine, perhaps. And that goes through the wastewater systems. And we can detect that at low cost. And because it's not a clinical diagnostic tool, it does not have to have FDA approval because we're not diagnosing anyone with anyone. We're just looking to find out if something is there. Looking for the signal. That's right. And so you imagine in Boston, it probably doesn't matter too much if we have a wastewater surveillance system right now for COVID because we know it's here. Now, you might say if we had a really sophisticated system that would still be a lot less expensive than a lot of the testing we're doing, we could narrow down to exactly where the COVID is. I mean, we could in, in the end have like smart toilets that were telling us, you know, everything we're shedding as we're going to the bathroom. But you think about the places of the world that have eliminated COVID. Like, what if we had a wastewater surveillance system for a whole bunch of infectious diseases in all the airports hooked up to all the toilets? Now, we couldn't say who had it, but we could certainly say if it's moving through, uh, no pun intended. And this is also a place where I do think we could start. A lot of this is like, you know, how long is it going to be till I say deep learning? Here it comes. Like, deep learning is really good at pattern recognition. You could convince me that you could build a pattern recognition system that could look for novel viral pathogens that, that could be a risk. And we could set that up in a wastewater surveillance system and start the screening process uh, going. And so, but those are the kinds of, and maybe let's just think about this as an analogy, but these are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. Low cost, easy to implement, passive. In this case, it's not maybe as critical that the false positive rate be super low so long as we have enough people in the middle to be able to to kind of make some executive decisions around whether we care about the alerts or not so low cost passive decision support systems that work as early warning that's right we're thinking about this the same way i think security is really similar too there's a lot of metadata and that's what wastewater is it's metadata about individuals that will generate great results and great predictions about vulnerabilities without identifying any individual company, organization, or machine. But that metadata has largely been discarded by the security industry because, I mean, just like in healthcare, you can't medically bill for metadata. You can't remediate a, a piece of metadata about an organization, but it turns out to be a really great leading indicator. Um, this is awesome because you've just done the other side of Jon Snow's cholera epidemic. Instead of the drinking water, it's the wastewater and you're using that as a signal for the spread. Well, what's really interesting is that the individual uh, who I'm collaborating with this on at Northeastern University, Professor Amit Pinto, his research area is into drinking water primarily. He's, he's retooled a bit to work on wastewater with COVID. But one of the things you might imagine is like, what if we had passive surveillance systems set up in Flint, Michigan, looking for lead contamination in drinking water? And even, even if we didn't have low cost systems for looking for lead contamination, I'm sure that the microbial community in the water is different if there's a heavy lead contamination than if there isn't a heavy lead contamination, right? And so that's the other reason why this like the high volume of data, low cost systems, then you can play the pattern recognition game, right? Like even if I don't, 
even if I couldn't tell you that there was a lead problem in Flint, I could surely be able to tell you that the water for the last six months, and hopefully this would have been 10 years ago, but the water for the last six months doesn't look like the water used to look uh, six months before that. And we need to have somebody come out and figure out why. Interesting. Well, and Michael, you, I mean, you kind of kicked off with this whole, uh, you know, what's the best bang for the buck, but it seems like the whole metadata approach to cybersecurity, like you said, most uh, companies kind of discard it, right? Threat intel is more fun, right? We're looking for IOCs. We want to go threat hunting. Let's do the sexy stuff. Um, what is the not sexy stuff in the metadata that has given you more insight when you're looking at, uh, you know, trying to make predictions? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the number of IDS signatures for a particular vulnerability, or even the number of people writing about that vulnerability early on, the number of references, links, things like that, that metadata is often more indicative than anything about the actual vulnerability, like the code execution or the type of vulnerability that it is. And that conveys all conventional wisdom. You would think that you know, a Microsoft vulnerability that behaves in this particular way is what attackers are going after. But it turns out that a much better predictor and much more effective mechanism is that passive data about what are signatures being written for, how often are these signatures being triggered, or just how many links are there that mention this vulnerability across the internet on day two ends up being more useful. So it starts to imply activity and or velocity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the exact same thing as wastewater, if you think about it. It's, you know, there's byproducts of security. Those byproducts are usually hits or mentions or analyses and just their existence in the wastewater that is the internet is often really indicative of problems forthcoming. Well, I would guess that there's another similarity, which is if you're using molecular diagnostic tests on an individual to look for COVID-19, and I'm going to put this in scare quotes for the evolutionary biologist, if the test is highly effective, the virus is going to quote patch and will start to evade those tests, right? So if you have a molecular diagnostic test and if individuals get diagnosed fast enough such that they are quarantined, they will transmit the virus onto fewer individuals. If there is a mutational variant of the virus that cannot be detected by the test, that virus will spread more than other viruses and will sweep through the population uh, replacing the virus that can be detected by the test, rendering the test ineffective. So like a natural resistance? That's right. Yeah. Like you could think about it as the evolution of resistance to antibiotics or the evolution of resistance to anything that interrupts transmission is could be the target of, of the evolution of, of resistance. So on the infectious disease side, one of the benefits of the sort of quote metadata surveillance is that it is more likely to be effective for longer periods of time. So it's not it's not if one problem is it's not effective for intervention, at least in the way I've described it. It's much more effective for detection surveillance, what we refer to as situational awareness in the public health side. And so there are there are trade-offs, right? So one reason you don't use antibiotics too often is you don't want to have resistance evolve. One reason we might not want to use too much in the way of active testing is you don't want resistance to evolve. And so you want to mix between this high throughput, uh, always on passive surveillance that we're less concerned about resistance evolving to with your superpowered interventions uh, where you want to use them and have them be highly effective. And obviously, molecular diagnostics is somewhere in the middle between wastewater surveillance and antibiotics. We can deploy pretty broad scale molecular diagnostics. And we have lots of ways of 
of avoiding resistance by targeting multiple parts of the genome, et cetera, et cetera. But I would assume there's probably a similar analogy in, in the security space with the, the benefits of, of le le leveraging metadata. Yeah, you just leave the systems vulnerable that hold the patents that aren't that valuable and then let attackers <laughs> continue to harvest those. Or you make them look really valuable, right? So you train, and here's the deep learning coming in, you train a neural network to write file names of beneficial sounding patents and fill up hard drives with those and just leave them on the side of the road, so to speak, and see what happens. That is a strategy. Honeypots are around for a while. Banks even set up accounts with large dollar amounts that don't actually belong to anybody just to see if people will start to siphon that money or wire transfer it out. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you also want to be, you don't want to change the system too much. It becomes a wicked problem if you're constantly telling attackers to shift their mindset and innovate faster. And then you're moving in a very quick OODA loop that you might not want to be moving in. You might instead want to say, great, Adobe Reader is continuously vulnerable to some things. We can build mitigations on the back end and leave this vulnerability open because we can detect it passively. Well, that's the other reason why we need continuous always on data is that even if we've built a model that gets the causality right today, the causality might not be the same tomorrow. And that's because these systems are evolving, either because they're actually evolving by natural selection as, as happens with pathogens like COVID, or they're evolving by analogous methods in terms of the predator-prey dynamics that happen between attackers and defenders in the cybersecurity space. But because, as you said, the rules are shifting, the landscape is shifting, your understanding from yesterday doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to understand what's going to happen tomorrow. And you have to continue to gather data, retrain, reevaluate, uh, and adapt as the system shifts. And so if anything, one of the things that we need to do a better job of on the epi side, and this is work that, that we've been very active in, and I suspect is something that, that Kenna and, and you are very active in, Michael, given your sort of philosophy around data, is that Part of the value proposition around data is that if we can be sure of one thing, it's that tomorrow will be different from today. And if we're not gathering data, we're just not going to be prepared. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think until you said in the Epi community, it just sounded like a pitch for the kind of data analysis that I think is right in security, too. You know, if you score a vulnerability once, that's not very useful to anyone because by the time an IT operator is actually looking at that system, everything has changed. The attacker behavior has changed, the payoff functions, what that vulnerability can be paired with, what intelligence exists about it. Both the data pipeline needs to be real-time, that passive or active collection, and your model needs to be real-time and reactive to the global changes in what people are doing. You might have had an amazing model in 2004, but ransomware didn't exist. And so the best threat intelligence best model built back then isn't going to give you great predictions today. No, I guess it's like, don't listen to anyone over 40 that's not a Forbes 30 under 30 or that didn't train their model in the last 48 hours, right? Like, you know, it's, you really have to have this continual refining process, this reevaluation, this always on surveillance because things are going to be shifting. And in fact, the better you are at intervening, the more important it's going to be that you have these real-time data because we know that the attackers are going to find a route because as you said, Going back to the virus analogy, the cost is so low, right? And so you're never going to be able to stamp out all possible attacks. You're never going to be able to stamp out all possible viruses. We cannot prevent the next COVID from finding its way into a public market somewhere. We can, and it is an imperative that we prevent 
COVIDs in the future from becoming a pandemic. And that's where the data come in. That's where the models and the predictions come in. And I, again, expect that it's not really just an analogy on the security side. It is very, very uh, similar in the sense that you're never going to be able to stop all attackers from trying to attack or, or plug all vulnerabilities, but you can certainly prevent uh, you know, entire or, or work very hard to prevent entire organizations from going down for weeks because uh, they let an, an attack get out of hand. That's right. You can you cannot fix all vulnerabilities, but you can certainly strive to fix the ones that are actually causing risk to an organization if you have the right models and if you're updating them fast enough. Absolutely. Well, I, I think this has been awesome, but I figured, uh, you know, we can start to wrap it up there. Um, in closing, I definitely recommend people following uh, Sam on Twitter. I'll link it on the podcast page along with the blog that we uh, use to promote this as well. I will also link Sam's Google Scholar page just so you could see how much smarter he is than I am. And then uh, he has, also has a GitHub page because apparently that's what the cool kids used to do. So we'll link all that so you can follow Sam and see what he's up to. Um, other than that, check out Kenna Security and KennaResearch.com to follow the podcast. And if you need anything, feel free to reach out to any of us on Twitter. Thanks, guys, for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.